Welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Another glorious day in New York City with a few clouds in the sky, but not too many. I think it's teasing us. It's going to have one more blizzard drop on us before the uh, Arctic vortex lets us go for the year. So, uh, Charlie, as I understand from our, our conversation this morning, you have ordered yourself a new gun. Did you get it from a member of the General Assembly, or did you get it from a drug dealer? Neither. I, I bought it over the internet, but I could, perhaps have bought it from Democratic State Senator from California called Leland Yee, who has hit the headlines in the last couple of days for taking part in what has to be one of the greatest corruption scandals in American history. Well, tell us the details. This is a guy who is ostensibly extremely anti-Second Amendment and pro-gun control. He bangs on about Newtown on his Twitter feed. He loathes the NRA. He praises Piers Morgan. He says there's no debate, no discussion as to whether Americans should be able to own what he calls assault weapons. He talks about the children. He is an enemy of the gun rights movement. He's ferociously against them, and yet it comes out he's an arms trafficker who has now been indicted by the federal government on a whole host of charges and is out on half a million dollars worth of bail. Now, according to pretty much every media outlet, he was involved in a scandal in which federal agents posing as mafioso uh, types offered him campaign contributions if he would hook them up with weapons, weapons including missile launchers <laughs> and fully automatic uh, firearms, and he obliged. He said in emails that are in the indictment that he didn't really care what sort of weapons that people wanted. That was what they were going to get hold of anyway. This is a gun control advocate, mind you. He said that Africa was a market that had been <laughs> untapped, and he thought that he was... Uh, delivering firearms to a Chinatown uh, mafia member called Shrimp Boy. My favorite thing about this story is, first of all, is the Chi Kung Tong Mafia, which is one of these you know great uh, Asian crime syndicates that are just awful that make the uh, you know the traditional Cosa Nostra look like the uh, Boy Scouts, but also the presence of a man called Shrimp Boy. Oh yeah, I think I think is what really makes this story work for. And that it should be said was. That was a real transaction. I mean, that guy actually is a criminal. Yeah. Uh, the FBI gave him $42,000 uh, in the course of their investigation, which he took on the promise that he would uh, introduce the agent, who was posing as a member of the, ma the Italian mafia, I think, um, introduce him to a man who could get him weapons from a Muslim separatist group in the Philippines. You could not write this. This sounds like a novel or a television show. Uh, it's been sort of a a bad couple of days for Democrats in terms of uh, political corruption scandals. We've got our friend in California who Mike could hook you up with the rocket launcher if he uh, if he manages to get out of this case, which I think he should totally do, by the way, because let's face it, Connecticut is dangerous, and sure. uh, a rocket launcher might. might well, be I, I, I thought I would call my new gun the General Yi. <laughs> nice. Uh, that's uh, that's terrific. But then we had. Uh, Mayor of Charlotte, uh, where we were uh, two years ago for the Democratic National Convention, uh, taken in 
on charges of, uh, was it taking bribes in this case? And I read in the story that he planned to collect a bribe, and I'm quoting here, through the use of a feminine hygiene product. Yes, it, it, this struck me. I can't quite get to the bottom of this, but this struck me as one of... So to speak. <laughs> this did strike me as one of those times in which somebody is caught doing something awful and so just says political buzzwords. No, 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 middle class. No, 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 feminine women's rights hygiene product. I mean, it, it does seem to be true, but that he forwarded this at all. You know, the story is bribes. It's illegal campaign contributions. It's corruption. Yeah. And he seems to want to make it about feminine hygiene products. This is just perplexing. I really don't know what, what to say about it. I'm not even sure what we can say about so, this case. Uh, I have a, a, an insight, I think, into the Leland G case, yeah. which is that, of course, your average gun control advocate is sincere, and of course they're not selling arms, and of course they're not negotiating uh, deals with the mafia. But they are selling a vision in which American citizens are expected to trust the government. And not just trust the government in the sense of believing that it wouldn't become tyrannical or that their local law enforcement is on the level, but trust them to look after them, which we know, per the Supreme Court and per the basic geography of the United States, is impossible in an awful lot of cases. And I think one of the problems that you and I face as skeptics of government power is that human beings like to believe that their age is particularly safe. And, you know, if we learned anything from the rise uh, of totalitarianism and from the 20th century, it's that people can be very quickly uh, made to believe that in their age of enlightenment, human nature has been suppressed, that man is perfectible, that we have new Soviet man, that the government can be trusted. Um, now, a cursory glance at the 20th century renders the notion that human beings having too much free speech or too many privately owned firearms or a government that is constrained by law, the idea that that's the problem is risible. But nonetheless, we, we do get ourselves into this point. And, you know, you look at someone like Leland G, and it's a nice reminder, as was the IRS scandal, as was the NSA scandal, as was the Department of Justice's behavior with private journalists and so on, you realize, no, these are people as well. And just because they stand up and they say, well, I'm for the children, doesn't mean that they are. And it, it is a good reminder, this guy's name is going to come up during every single debate over gun control for a decade. Yeah. And we'll move on to uh, New York here in a second. But I think you, you're absolutely right about that. And one of the things, I mean, the sort of unhappy lessons of the 20th century is that these horrible movements that we saw come to power and murder oh, 100 million or more people over the course of that century, they weren't from, you know, some backward, primitive, savage cultures. There were Russians, uh, you know, who were an enormously enlightened people with you know, great art and literature and music uh, from Germany. Uh, you know, some of the world's great scientists and poets and It was engineers the preeminent civilization, probably, yeah. at that point. And from China, you know, one of the longest-standing hmm. uh, civilized cultures on Earth. All three of these places. You know, we're not talking about some, you know, machete-wielding uh, people with no organized government, no organized life, uh, suddenly deciding to go on a murder spree. In fact, that's kind of what made the 20th century so horrible, is that these totalitarian movements grew up in places that were politically and technologically sophisticated. You know, for all the horrors that happened in places like Rwanda or Haiti and places like that, they're never going to organize something on the scale of the Holocaust or the Gulag system in the Soviet Union because their cultures simply aren't 
that organized. You're not producing evil at that scale. It can be, you know, sort of local and disorganized and uh, and horribly savage at times. But it's it, it's it, it, it's even worse when you're talking about it growing up in a place like that. Which is not that you know. I think the United States is by any means on the no. on the verge of that sort of thing. But people are people, and people are defective. Well, and one of the great fallacies is that because we have great institutions and protections, we can therefore give some of them up. Right. Yeah. I mean, that really doesn't make very much sense. And again, I mean, this is it, it needs to be remind, remembered here. This is a guy who was simultaneously trying to take firearms away from his constituents yeah. and put them in the hands of organized crime. Now, I'm not suggesting that everybody in the American government uh, is like that for one moment. Of course they're not. But nobody expected him to be doing this. And every institution is corruptible. You know, it's something I've written about a lot and talked about a lot, which is that uh, for all of its problems and all for, for all the problems of New York City government, if you were ranking big city police departments in the United States, you probably have to put New York City at the top. It's one of the best-run, you know, most professional, most honest police departments, but it's still routinely penetrated by uh, organized crime and just by, you know, police doing things on their own. We had, you know, a couple of NYPD detectives working as mob enforcers for years. Uh, in California, we had uh, members of their organized crime squad committing bank robberies. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, dealing drugs openly and that sort of thing. So, yeah, you do have to watch uh, people with power. And on the subject of New York, that brings us back to uh, Bill Scarborough. No relation to Joe Scarborough, as uh, far as I know, I don't think. And he's the number three on our, uh, on our triumvirate uh, that today. And uh, he's a New York State uh, General Assemblyman, is that right? I think so. And he's accused of misappropriating funds from his office, uh, travel vouchers and things like that. And, you know, that's fairly small fry compared to being an international arms trafficker or, uh, or you know, really you know, soliciting bribes and that sort of thing. But I think that the interesting third leg of, uh, of the corruption story today is that um, it doesn't have to be spectacular. You know, it doesn't have to be uh, getting into bed with Shrimp Boy and arming up uh, you know, separatist movements in Africa or wherever, the Philippines, uh, that, you know, politicians are uh, just sort of inherently corruptible. And in a sense, I think they might be more corruptible than the average population because a certain sort of person goes into mm -hmm. politics and they go into it because they want something. And when you, have a tr when you have the opportunity to get that thing that is you want, which is either power or wealth or other sorts of things, they have lots of opportunities uh, for misbehaving. Your average person does not ever get offered a bribe over the course of his life. But if you, even if you're a small-time you know, political figure, not even an elected official, but someone who works at the DMV, or as we saw in Atlanta, if you're the superintendent of schools and you want the test scores to come out a certain way, the opportunities for corruption are always there. The means to get it done is always there. And, uh, and, also, and they simply have to be watched. Right, and this guy ran for Secretary of State of California... Yeah. And the mayor of Charlotte is a big position. It's a big city, yeah. uh, especially if you look at the population centers in the south. I mean, Charlotte is not a small deal. But even if it were, there is a standard to which Republicans are held, and I don't object to this, um, that there is no such thing as a local story. Right. And if you look at the 
even someone like Todd Akin, yes, he was running for the Senate, but he was deemed immediately to be indicative of the entire Republican Party and its yeah. attitude toward women. You saw 10,000 uh, fundraising letters go out. Dave Weigel had a good post on Slate recently where he said, you know, it is a bit ridiculous the way that the Democrats pick up on every single local Republican, but that there are a lot of local Republicans who say hideous things. Sure. So you, of course you're going to jump on them. Well, by that same standard, if we're going to, in an age of the internet and in an age of mass media, if we're going to hold a party accountable even for its low-level officials, to use the <laughs> jargon of the IRS, then we need to hold people like Leland G and the mayor of Charlotte accountable too and remember that they're from a party with a name and that it is responsible for its members. We can't have it one way and not the other. You know, it's, it seems like the, the whole idea of hypocrisy in the American political discourse really only applies to sex. So every time some Republican gets caught with his pants down somewhere, which happens a whole lot, airport bathrooms, various brothels in the houses of prostitution and that sort of thing, it becomes a national story on the theme of hypocrisy. Because here are the Republicans who run as you know family values and moral traditionalists and all that sort of stuff. Although I've always thought that was of sort of limited applicability. It's not like Bill Clinton ran for office on a pro-adultery platform <laughs> and was, you know, therefore, you know, living up to his own standards. But um, we don't hear that in the case of a Democratic Party, which is the party of governments, the party of the states, the party of government employees. And so their vision of the world uh, contains within it an implicit assumption about the trustworthiness of those institutions, which they go out of their way to disprove time and again. Our friend Michael Walsh wrote a little book a couple of years ago called The People vs. Democratic Party. Uh, and his usual uh, description is a crime syndicate masquerading as a political party, which I think may be a tad harsh, but is not entirely, I think, inappropriate. No. And if you look at the case of, of Leland Yee, I mean, the Republican uh, argument is, well, if you outlaw guns, only outlaws will have guns. I mean, he seems to have taken it upon himself to prove that maxim. <laughs> They're going to have to change the uh, bumper stickers and say, if you outlaw guns, only outlaws in California state senators will have guns. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm still reeling, if I'm honest. I mean, these stories come up, and they're extremely useful to those of us who say, guys, uh, human beings are fallible. But this is, what Americans say, a doozy. A doozy, yes. You know, knowing your interests uh, as I do, when I saw that story, I just thought it must be like Christmas for you <laughs> because this is just going to be kind of the best thing ever. You're going you're gonna to write about this for the next couple of years, probably. Well, because it combines my two favorite topics, which is which is gun law and uh, the difference in the way that, and this is a broad brush, but the way that conservatives and most libertarians see human nature and the way in which the left sees human nature. Um, I often joke that I'm an atheist who believes in original sin, <laughs> but I, I almost do in the sense that I don't think that man can be shaped by society to be uh, good or virtuous beyond a certain point. I mean, you can change human behavior with laws and institutions and cultural inputs and sometimes with great leadership and great example, but you can't stop people like Leland Yee from taking positions of power and uh, corrupting uh, the institutions and betraying those who put him in power. You just can't do it. I think that's the fundamental thing that the left never really gets, uh, is, the, is the basic philosophical point 
of ought implies can. Mm. You know, they say our political institutions and public organizations ought to do X, Y, and Z. And we have to come along and remind them that they can't actually do those things because they are full of fallible people who have limited knowledge, uh, limited ability to get things done, but also have moral and ethical shortcomings, as we all do. And so when you say, well, this would have worked great if only we had had uh, the right sort of people in there, you have to ask the question, what are those right sort of people actually exist? It's the old, you know, if we were governed by angels, then we wouldn't have to worry about any of this, but as it turns out that we're not. So, you know, without um, invading your privacy here, uh, if you don't want to talk about it, that's okay. No, it's fine. But what'd you get? Anyway. I got a, a 6 uh, P229 SAS Generation 2. Uh, so for the people at home who uh, don't have the catalog in front of them, this is a... So it's a, it's a 9mm um, SIG. The SAS part means that it's been slightly dehorned and the trigger guard is rounded. So it's probably slightly too big a gun for a routine concealed carry. But my fiance correctly pointed out to me that living pretty close to the border of another state, which is not liberal in my sense with its concealed carry uh, regime, the scope for carrying a firearm as a matter of routine is limited at the moment. And that it would also be nice if she could shoot uh, <laughs> a gun that is a little bit bigger and therefore has slightly less recoil. Um, so, so you didn't get the lady a forty-four Magnum? I didn't. And the, the Generation 2 bit um, it means that it has a short reset trigger for the gun geeks out there and uh, night sights and so on. It doesn't have a, a rail on it. So, no, I'm... Uh, you know, the I'm, state issue actually is kind of interesting to me uh, because I ran into this problem all the time. I lived in Pennsylvania for a long time. Pennsylvania actually has really very good laws does, about yeah. getting concealed carry permit. And, you know, being a fairly unpopular uh, newspaper editor, I, I carried uh, every day. But Pennsylvania runs right up against a couple of states. And, you know, Philadelphia, where I was, you're, you're right there, uh, Delaware and New Jersey, where you really just basically can't uh, get yourself a, a license carry. Actually, I'm not sure what Delaware's rules are like now. Uh, I thought, I seem to remember them maybe opening things up a little bit. But New Jersey is still pretty much you know, China in terms well, of... Well, New Jersey is, is, is so bad, in fact, that I think up to 20 states have filed an amicus brief with its uh, case pending at the Supreme Court. Yeah. I mean, there are, it is now the outlier, and after the Ninth Circuit effectively told California to get its act together, it, the remaining... It's actually bizarre that the Ninth and Seventh Circuits um, have both sided with the right to bear arms, literally to, to bear arms, on its concealed carry regimes, the Seventh Circuit told Illinois that it wasn't allowed to deny its citizens that right, and the Ninth Circuit told California. Meanwhile, the Second, Third, and Fourth Circuits have gone the other way, which means that California and Illinois now have better firearms laws than much of the country. Um, and New Jersey, sadly, and, and New York City, too, are stuck very much uh, 25 years ago. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out how many felonies I committed when I was living in Pennsylvania by missing my turn somewhere sure. and having to briefly briefly drive through New Jersey or Delaware. The thing was, my shooting range was right on the Delaware border, and uh, there was a gas station next to it, and I would routinely forget and you know, go to the gas station and fill up my car, because it was a bit of a drive from my place. What's the statute of limitations on missing your accent? <laughs> <laughs> this is not Kevin Williamson speaking. No. This is someone else. This is Charlie Cook doing an impersonation of Kevin Williamson. You did know he could do a West Texas accent. It's a pun. It's a can. palindrome, as the Monty Python would say. Right. You know, so, but I guess what we really need to work on on that is getting the 
uh, reciprocity up because the federal government's never going to give us what we want. I mean, Congress well, is never going to pass a law. And nor should it. I, I think this is an important point. There does come a, a point, I think, at which if the federal government and the Supreme Court starts to make the federal government interpret the full faith and credit clause to such an extent that we're, for example, recognizing gay marriage licenses across states where you know there's really no case for sure. it, then I will be the first to stand up and ask for national reciprocity. But there's two problems with federal reciprocity. I have a, a feeling you're about to disagree with me, but there's two problems, I think, with federal reciprocity. Firstly, in terms of uh, Tenth Amendment um, it, it, you know, adherence, I think it really is up to the states to set their gun laws. Now, they can't violate after an incorporated Second Amendment. They can't violate them too much. But there is a little bit of latitude between, you know, Heller as incorporated by McDonald and, say, you know, being Arizona where they've effectively got rid of all of them. And so, to an extent, you're always going to have um, a patchwork quilt, and you should. Secondly, uh, and if you're a Federalist, uh, I think you should, you should back that. Um, although I'm interested to see why you would disagree. The second thing is this. What you really want and what has largely happened is a culture at the state level in which the Constitution and its limitations really don't matter. I mean, nobody in Idaho is worried about what the Second Amendment says. It would be suicide for politicians in those uh, in that state to, to pass a law that violated people's rights. They're, they're so far beyond what is possible, what is permissible. And so the Second Amendment's interpretation could be overturned tomorrow by a progressive court, and it wouldn't really matter for much of the country now. And my worry with a, a federal uh, reciprocity law is that it can be taken away. Well, yeah, there's that. And I, I'm not so much thinking of a federal reciprocity mandate. And like you, I prefer this stuff to be handled at the state level because I think the states are just better than the federal government on those things. But we do have a federal right to keep and bear arms. And I don't think there's any reason you couldn't have a piece of federal legislation uh, clarifying what that means, uh, which means that you can carry arms. I don't think but it would, be would preempt thing. the states, although I think post-incorporation may be all right, maybe a ship. Yeah. Although we do have all failed. sorts of federal laws that preempt the states. I mean, firearms dealers are all federally licensed, so we already have a de facto federal regime. No, you're right, but I don't like that. Well, okay, I don't <laughs> like it either. But if we're going to have it, why not get something good out of yeah, it? Yeah, if, if the argument is that that ship is sailed, then maybe we should turn it to our advantage. I think we're probably running out of time, but I just wanted to tack something onto the end here yeah. as regards um, our conversation about the way in which conservatives and progressives see human nature and that is some people have written to me or tweeted at me who listen to the podcast and they're on the left mm. and they say well you know well I'm a little bit disappointed because you know you two sometimes just take a very conservative and libertarian view and I would say well firstly that's because <laughs> it's a conservative libertarian podcast but it's not that conservatives in any way are angels on the question of human nature either. I think they're a lot better than progressives. But when it comes to the drug war, you do very often see conservatives conflating intentions and outcomes. And, uh, you know, another very good example of this yesterday came up in an SE Cup column on uh, welfare drug testing, yeah. which is that I, I don't have a problem whatsoever with the federal government wanting to prevent people from spending their welfare uh, checks on drugs to the extent that that actually happens. And I don't want them spending their welfare checks on alcohol and alcoholism either. But if you look at the details of the case, very often drug testing costs an awful lot more than the welfare in the first place. And this is another area in which conservatives do precisely the same thing that they rail against. So to anyone who uh, tweets at us, of course, we're going to take a conservative and libertarian view generally because that's what we believe. And that's the conclusion that we've come to. But it's not a partisan position. 
No, I, I think SC was right about that. And conservatives often engage in the same sort of wishful thinking. Yeah. I mean, you see a lot of this in terms of the national security stuff. And, uh, well, you know, we're going to spy on Americans at home, but we're doing it for the right reasons, and we'll make sure we've got the right kind of people in charge of the programs, which, you know, just always begs the question of do the right kind of people exist? I think you and I would say no. Yeah, and the execution of American citizens abroad without trial, effectively, well, we just trust the president to make that call. Yeah, except I don't. <laughs> I don't either. All right, we'll see you all tomorrow.